Well, we do want to transition, get started on our message. And I wanted to take an opportunity, if I could, just to have a shepherding moment. It's very common in our culture for us to set goals. Would you agree? Yeah, we, we set goals in our workplace. We set academic goals, educational goals, right? And what I think is a little unfortunate is oftentimes we don't really have in mind any spiritual goals. We don't, we don't really think about it that way. And so as I've just been spending time with the Lord and have um, enjoyed fellowship, just even talking about the Gospel of Mark with a few dear brothers in the church I'm so thankful for, the Lord really just impressed upon my heart just a, a couple ways that I want to share that I hope that the gospel of Mark impacts us as a church. Would it, would it be okay if I just share um, what those things are? There, there's five of them, and our sermon outline was jam-packed, and I was going to have these printed in the sermon notes, but there just wasn't space, and we'll probably refer to these even throughout the gospel journey that we have through Mark. But let me share what they are. The the first one is this, that our love for God and others would continue to increase. Mark 12.30, Jesus is asked for the greatest commandment. And his response is what? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your mind. And Mark, specifically the gospel account of Mark, as the Holy Spirit led him, actually includes and your strength it's unique to the gospel of mark and my prayer is that the gospel of mark would fuel our affection for christ and it would deepen our relationship and as we talked about in the very first uh, message that we heard that it wouldn't just be simply knowing about god but it would be deepening our relationship with him in a, a personal and abiding way that Christ would indeed be our first love. The Gospel of John, in chapter 13, verse 35, says, By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And so I wanted to draw our attention to the fact that Mark is going to remind us that love is cultivated. It's cultivated within, within our lives. And it involves the entirety of our being. All our heart, all, all of our soul, all of our mind. And all of our strength. And my prayer is that our church would continue to bear much loving fruit. Number two, that our appreciation for God's word and the gospel would continue to cultivate humility. That we would grow in a deep appreciation that God has given us eyes to see and ears to hear his divine truth. And that we would look to Christ and see how he served and consider the reality of his life as as he was the first to lead out in doing all things for the sake of the gospel. And he did all things for the sake of the gospel. The very heartbeat that's represented by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 9.23. That likewise we would be captured and as we cultivate humility in our lives, that that would yield to the same effort and focus 
that we would do all things for the sake of the gospel. Number three, then, our desire to become more like Christ would be real and properly understood. In Mark 8.37, Jesus says, And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Two essential words in that passage. We are to follow him. And we're going to learn more about what that looks like. And that it does indeed involve death to self. And it does indeed involve confrontation. Would it be hard for you to hear if I shared with you that you are hard-hearted? Would it be hard for you to hear if God were to challenge you and to say that you are hard-hearted? Our flesh has a natural response to that, right? It does. It has a... That, that, that's, uh, there's an inflammatory response that, that lives in the, in the flesh, but in the spirit, in the spirit, that can happen. That we see that it's a, a part of God growing us as a believer. And I trust that the gospel of Mark is going to allow us to see that in greater depth as we imitate Paul who followed Christ, as we are called to be imitators of God in Ephesians 5.1. The fourth thing is this, that our passion for evangelism and outreach would grow stronger. In Mark 1.17, Jesus says, follow me, again that, that theme, and I will make you fishers of men. And we're going to get to that passage not too long. That our heart for the lost would continue to grow and that we would be purposed and intentional with the opportunities that we have to share the gospel with those that the Lord has granted us access to. I don't know how many people in here have had the opportunity to ever go fishing. Literally, go fishing. It's a very unique experience. And there's knowledge involved in how to be, they're, they're good fishermen. And then there are people who go the first time and they're like, what am I doing? Wait, you got to put the worm in the night crawler, like pierce through it on the hook. And it's just like, whoa, this is, more intense than I thought it would be. You learn. And the same is true that we'll learn for, from Christ as we follow Christ about how to become more effective fishermen for his namesake and for his glory. Number five, that our commitment to serving Christ would not be based on convenience, but based on urgency. There's a word that we're going to see. It's used over 40 times throughout the 16 chapters of the Gospel of Mark, and it's the word immediately. There was urgency with Christ's ministry. And I want us, church, to catch, I said the coattails, but it's really the cloaktails of the Lord Jesus Christ to grab a hold of him and to, to ride the wave of that momentum and for us to cultivate within us a sense of urgency. The Lord's ministry was reduced really to about three and a half years from the time that he was baptized, from the time that he went to the cross. And he did things immediately because he recognized that he was on a sovereign clock. And the same is true for us. 
We're on a running clock. And there needs to be a sense of urgency that we feel that's, that's healthy for us. Now, that we, we don't get caught up in this uh, culture in which we live in that is always trying to rock us to sleep and to, to go along with indifference and, and apathy, right? To make leisure and entertainment your priority. And would you just listen to your flesh, listen to yourself, and... The last thing that needs to be happen that, that would happen is that ministry or service to Christ or anything would become an inconvenience, right? That's, that's very common in the church today. We're encapsulated into a convenient Christianity. Then we'll do things, we'll serve, but there's, but there's limits. There's, there's boundaries. There's convenience and we're also living in a time and I'll just say it straightforward where duty commitment responsibility even the commands of scripture are almost they're almost like dirty words that that you would never impress upon someone the the, the their, their their need to be responsive to the things of ministry And I understand there needs to be and always should be a proper context with those exhortations as it relates to being enabled, as it relates to stewardship, as it relates to do these things. But I I just want to share with you that there are probably going to be many other things that the Gospel of Mark reveals to us, but those are some of the things that the Lord put upon my heart. And that I would say, in, in many ways, function as goals that I have for you. And that, that are goals that I hope that you will have for me and, and our leadership as a, as a pastor and as elders that we would lead by example. There definitely needs to be a sense of urgency. Well, this is a good transition because in our passage today, we'll even notice a sense of urgency that's conveyed in the prophetic message of John the Baptist who served as a forerunner to Christ. And I think it's appropriate that we would just pray, ask God to continue just to to penetrate our, our mind and our hearts and our thinking as it relates to Christ and his ministry. Please pray with me. Father, we do... Thank you for every aspect of Christ's life and ministry. And we thank you for even the forerunner that was sent before him, the man, John the Baptist, who we get to learn about today. And we pray that as we have so many examples of scripture of faithful men and women who were incredible in the faith, who trusted you completely, that we have this example, and according to your word, the, the greatest example of a man who's ever been born of a woman in John the Baptist. And I just pray, Father, that you would allow us to see his humility, that you would allow us to see his urgency, that you would allow us to see his passion for you, his passion for your son, 
his passion for repentance, his passion for your people, and that we would be blessed by that ministry. That as we look to him, that we can even see the connection and how his ministry set up Christ and inaugurated the ministry of Christ. And as a result of Christ's ministry, we have a ministry. Would we capture that? And would you allow us to be changed by that as we consider it before us today? We pray that we would honor your word. I pray that you would give me clarity that you would guide me from misspeaking and that you would allow me to focus and that we could be served greatly as your spirit guides us in our time. We commit it to you, asking you to affirm it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I invite you to open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. And we're going to read verses 2 through 8 together. And this is what it says in the New American Standard, starting in verse 2. As it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him. And all the people of Jerusalem... And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist. And his diet was locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching and saying, After me, one is coming who is mightier than I. And I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptized you with water but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Last week, we made our formal introduction to the Gospel of Mark, and we've already covered verse 1, which in many ways serves as a title for the Gospel, for the entire thing. It's about the good news of Jesus Christ. It's about the good news of God's Son. And we learned last week that Mark wrote this account in Rome and that he wrote to a Roman Gentile audience. And we can safely assume that many would not have a deep understanding of Jewish customs or Old Testament scriptures, and so Mark used them sparingly. Scholars agree that this Old Testament citation is the only one on the entire gospel account and features a man named John the Baptist, who commonly referred to as the forerunner of Christ in the gospel accounts. And thus we have our sermon title, The Forerunner to Christ and Your Ministry Connection. And our text today, in many ways, serves like a bridge. It bridges our understanding from one dispensation to another dispensation. From the Old Testament to the New Testament. And within that span is a 400-year intertestamental period. I realize that that's a lot to take in all at once. And our passage is going to develop our understanding as to how this spiritual bridge 
was constructed according to God's plan and purposes, rooted in the Old Testament, all the way through that 400-year period to the launch of Christ's ministry and the church age. And this is why the sermon proposition in your notes says this, four ways that John the Baptist paved the way for Christ's ministry so that our ministry could eventually begin. The first way that John's ministry paved the way for Christ's ministry is this, the forerunner's ministry fulfilled prophecy. And we're going to look at verses 2 through 4. And we'll talk about the prophecy that was proclaimed. And we'll talk about the prophecy that was fulfilled. Number two, the forerunner ministry, his ministry prepared God's people. And it did so by their divine call to respond, their Godward repentance and confession, and their spiritual cleansing, which verse 5 will tell us more about. All were specific. They were specific to John the Baptist's ministry. Number three, the forerunner's ministry exalted the coming Christ. And we'll look at verses six and seven. The humble servant, John the Baptist, and the exalted Savior, Jesus Christ. And finally, number four, the forerunner's ministry initiates the Messiah's ministry. And we'll spend a brief time looking at this in verse 8. And as the subpoints indicate for you, John's water baptism foreshadows gospel ministry and spirit baptism in, in the Lord's completed work fulfills gospel ministry. And we'll talk more about that. In the end, we'll see the pivotal role that John the Baptist fulfilled as the forerunner to Christ and how his ministry connected to Christ's ministry ultimately connects us to ours. Well, let's get started with our first point. The forerunner's ministry fulfilled prophecy. And look at the beginning of verse 2. It says, As it is written in Isaiah, the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. Though Mark was writing to Gentiles, this phrase, as it were written, would have been very familiar to the Greco-Roman world. Their legal documents and their declarations would have said and used this exact phrase, as it were written. And the, the, the Jewish culture certainly would have understood it, and those who have spent time read, reading the Old Testament, we see this phrase often, as it was written. And this designates the authority of God, the law, or a king or prophet over their listeners. And our takeaway from this verse is that John the Baptist is God's designated messenger intended to pave the way for Christ. It was common in the ancient Near East for traveling kings to send somebody to go out before them when they were traveling. And their responsibility was to make sure that physically there weren't any obstacles out in the road ahead of them that there also weren't any enemies that were waiting to ambush them and attack them. They were, they were sent ahead to prepare the way. And spiritually, this was John the Baptist's task. He was to remove hindrances from the hearts of the people so that they would be ready to receive their coming king. And we'll talk more about what this looked like as we, as we progress. And here Mark features the prophet Isaiah. Yet... A closer look at verses 2 and 3 is actually going to reveal that this involved other Old Testament scriptures. As one commentator shares, 
It is actually a tapestry of three Old Testament passages. The reference is to the sending of the messenger in verse 2. And it follows the first half of both Exodus 23.20 and Malachi 3.1. Although there is no exact counterpart in the Old Testament for the latter half of verse 2, which says, who will prepare your way. He says this, the greater part of the tapestry comes in verse 3, which reproduces Isaiah 43 almost exactly. Isaiah 43 is quoted by all four gospel accounts with reference to John the Baptist as the forerunner of Jesus. John's task was to prepare the way for the one to follow. And in Exodus 23, 20, and also verse 23, it speaks of the messenger who would lead the the people, not simply as a human guide or even Moses, but a divine messenger of Yahweh. And so when we apply this to John the Baptist, it helps us to see that John was ordained divinely for this purpose. And it also helps us to understand that statement that I mentioned earlier in Matthew eleven eleven, when Jesus said, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there is none who has risen, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. John's greatness was not due to who he was as a person, but it was due to the divine privilege that was extended to him from God who ordained that John would be the one who was used to speak after 400 years of silence and to be used to establish the ministry bridge from the Old Testament to the New. And there's a lot here. There is a lot here. And that's why whenever I find in the course of my study, if I find somebody who can summarize it better than I can, I appeal to them. I, I want messages to be clear. I want you to see the connection. John was the precursor of God himself showing up in the incarnate Christ. And this is what a commentator shared, and I need you to track with me here, okay? Listen closely. This Old Testament quotation was the further effect of linking the life and ministry of Jesus to the Old Testament. Jesus is not an afterthought of God, as though an earlier plan of salvation had gone awry. Rather, Jesus stands in continuity with the work of God in Israel, the fulfiller of the law and prophets. This is mentioned in Matthew 5, 17, where Jesus says that in in the Beatitudes. He didn't come to abolish the law, did he? he? He came to fulfill it. And this introductory tapestry of Old Testament quotations not only links the person and ministry of Jesus inseparably with the preceding revelation of God in the Old Testament, but it makes the person and ministry of Jesus non-understandable apart from it. From a Christian theological perspective, this unites the New Testament uniquely and inseparably to the Old Testament. The gospel is understandable only as the completion of something that God began in the history of Israel. This excludes the possibility of Christians either dismissing or diminishing the importance of the Old Testament or of attempting to purge the gospel of its Jewish origins and context. You tracking with that? 
you, that, 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 that's important for us to see because we, we, we do live in the, the New Testament dispensation, but we also have to have a proper view of what has transpired in God's faithfulness and what occurred through the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. And the, the man to, to do this, the man to construct that bridge who had the divine ordained opportunity to build that bridge from that Old Testament to the New Testament was who? It was John the Baptist. The, the greatest man ever arisen, who was born of women ever to arise. John the Baptist. A wise person once said, the Bible doesn't begin with John 3.16. It's a good word. It doesn't. It begins with a book of beginnings that introduces us about God and the fall of mankind and an account of God's plan of redemption for mankind. It includes God's chosen people, the nation of Israel, and a plan that would involve God-ordained earthly kings leading until one day when the ultimate king would come, a king that many prophets would predict and point to, and none more notable than the prophet Isaiah, who's mentioned at the beginning. And that is why you see in your second level of subpoints in your outline, there's passages that are listed with the corresponding verses. And it's important to, to see this because you, you could encounter somebody. Uh, there are theologians that say that Mark made an error. Mark screwed up here. He, he got it wrong. He misquoted, he misquoted Isaiah because he included things that were said by Exodus, um, by Moses who recorded Exodus, and also the minor prophet Malachi. But a closer look allows us to see that it would have made perfect sense for Mark only to mention Isaiah. Why? Because he was one of the, the, the major prophets in the Old Testament, whereas Malachi was one of the 12 minor prophets. Isaiah was actually considered the greatest of all the prophets. No New Testament prophet is quoted more in the New Testament than the prophet Isaiah. It's commonly referred to, the, the book of Isaiah is commonly referred to, as many already know, as the fifth gospel. And verse 3 carries the weight of this quoted prophetic message. It says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And this prophetic message was, it came nearly six centuries earlier, and it was going to describe one man and one man only. And it was John the Baptist. It's a straightforward picture. It's not allegorical in any sense. Has anyone here ever served in the military, in our U.S. military? Show of hands. Yep. Jerry, looks like you and I. All right. We're the, we're, we're the only guys. Anyone else? Oh, we got another one over here. We got, all right, Big John Lee. I forgot, but yes, indeed. All right. You guys know and are familiar that whenever there is a high-ranking officer that is coming through the crowd of soldiers, that there is something that gets said that is true across all branches of military service so that people have a heads up that somebody's coming. It's, it's two words that they yell out. And it's this. Make way! 
Make way. And that's what we would have to yell when I went to West Point Prep, military prep school. I was active duty in the Army, even when I attended West Point Prep. And this was very common. And it seemed like it always happened in the chow hall where the higher ranking officials, and they would come and then that allowed them to go straight to the front of the lunch line. But you would stand at attention and yell, make way. And this was a cue for other soldiers to step out of the path and to stand at attention, ready to receive any instruction. Sometimes it wasn't always in the chow hall. Sometimes it was an urgent message that was coming. It also shows honor and reflects a willingness to submit to a superior officer. And John's message in verse 3 is this, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. The army of God's people was being called to clear the path. They were being called to stand ready at attention. And they were, this was taking place because the highest ranking superior that they would ever see or know, the Lord Jesus Christ, would soon begin his ministry. People needed to prepare to make way. And what would this preparation look like? Well, in subpoint P, we see the prophecy fulfilled. Verse 4 is a fulfillment of the prophecy of verse 3. And it provides a commentary for the preceding verse when it reads, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Both the prophecy and the fulfillment feature a literal and common geographic location. It's the wilderness. And the voice was that of John. The crying was his preaching. And the more literal translation is a voice of one shouting. And this is the same Greek word that's used commonly for the the word preaching in the New Testament for, for preachers. It's to herald boldly. It's to proclaim with authority. And John's cry was marked by intensity and emotion. And he was eager to arrest the attention and gain the ear of those who would hear God's message delivered through him. We can learn a lot from John's example. How passionate are you about sharing God's message? Are you actively seeking ways to arrest the attention of family and friends so that they can hear the most important truths that they need to hear in their lives? What emotions do you feel towards lost loved ones and friends? Is it fueled with passion? Or is it fueled with indifference? I can just tell you on a personal note, many who are unsaved in my family it's it's hard and sometimes I find my heart truly just lacking lacking in my love for them I, I get tired of hearing them complain I get tired of hearing them taking foolish paths and routes it frustrates me honestly it frustrates me sometimes 
and I have to be reminded. And, and I can look to the example of John the Baptist who, who behind the message, behind what he was saying, there was a love, there was a care, there was a concern for God. There was something that prompted his heart. There was something that drove him to deliver the message that he was delivering. How might John's boldness and passion prompt our hearts to overcome our fears and be more urgent with the message that lost family and friends and coworkers and students and everyone around us so desperately needs to hear? And we can go right back to this. This is such a, this is, this is T-ball right here. This is, this is setting the ball right up on the T and saying, swing, just swing, just hit it. It's right there. It's not even moving. It's not, even, it's not a fastball coming. It's not a curveball. This is just like right there on the tee, right there on the tee. And who, who, as you pray this week, who is God going to put on your heart and say, you know what? I want them at Cornerstone. I want them to grow. I want their life to glorify God. Who? 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 May all of us, your pastor included, put a name on this card and, and make a delivery to someone. And may it be like John, who was fueled with passion. And this was just the first way that John the Baptist's ministry paved the way for Christ's ministry. It fulfilled prophecy. Well, how would this fulfilled, uh, fulfillment revealed in verse 4 prepare God's army of people? What does it say? Verse 4 says that there was a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins. What does this mean? And what does it look like practically? Let's transition to the second way. John paved the way, excuse me, for Christ's ministry in our text. The forerunner's ministry prepared God's people. And I believe that verse 5 will also help us better understand the baptism of repentance that was just mentioned in verse 4. Notice what verse 5 says. And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. John's ministry prepared God's people in three specific ways, and they're listed as your subpoints: Their divine call to respond, their Godward repentance and confession, and their spiritual cleansing from sin. How was this a divine call? This was God's messenger preaching God's message to God's people. That's divine. And even the work that was taking place in the hearts of the response was a work of God, was a divine work that was taking place. So much so that it says that all the country, or in the Greek, this word is land. Some translations even have it as countryside. And the land here is used figuratively. It's not talking about the real estate. It's talking about the inhabitants. And it says, And all the people of Jerusalem were coming to hear God's message. And this helps us to see the full breadth of John's ministry from the countryside all the way to the city that was drawing them out to come to the wilderness, the desert wilderness. After centuries of silence, the prophetic message that John was bringing was causing quite the stir, as you could imagine, amongst the Jews. And it resulted in this massive outpouring to respond to God's messenger and message. John's ministry worked in conjunction with God's divine call for Israel 
to respond. And I want you to think about this context because this is pretty amazing. They were being called out to where? The desert wilderness. Yes, the same place that they spent so long in the desert wilderness journeying, right? Before the entry to the promised land and all the things that were taking place. And there's without any question that there was a remembrance going on with the people and the tradition for them to be thinking about the the subtle acknowledgement of Israel's history of disobedience and rebellion and a desire to begin again. And though scripture doesn't reveal the exact number of people that were going out, we shouldn't be so concerned about the number of people that are responding, but we should be focused on the quality of their response. And this is a good transition to our next subpoint: their Godward repentance and confession. Look at the end of verse 5. And I'm going to the end, and we're going to come back to the middle for, for, for a purpose. It says, the people were confessing their sins. They were not necessarily confessing their sins directly to John the Baptist. He wasn't fulfilling some priestly role like in a Roman Catholic church in a, in a confessional. John's preaching ministry as he pro- proclaimed God's word was cultivating within God's people a heart of contrition and godly sorrow. Their confession of sins at the time of their baptism marked the reality of their repentance. It was a confessing out and it indicates an openness and a fullness of their confession. It was a public public acknowledgement of their sins to God directly. And if you'll recall, in our Psalm 32 study, we talked about this, that confessing actually means saying the same thing. Saying the same thing that God is ultimately saying. And this was a recognition by the people of God's divine verdict on their lives concerning their sins. True confession implied their willingness to call their sins by the name that God gives them. And the same is true for us today. Our sins are not mistakes. Our sins are not goof-ups. Our sins are are not accidents. Our our sins are, are transgression of God's law. And it's sometimes a we've got to be cautious of this. It can be a bad habit to develop and we can make light of sin by using the world's words as it relates to our sin. We get that? And that's why even in your care groups, it's so important when we're talking about things and you talk about struggles and things like that, that we don't, that we, we use, we identify and, and walk according to biblical terms and descriptions. And this sets us up nicely for the third way that the forerunners ministry prepared God's people. It encouraged their spiritual cleansing from sin. Now you can look back at the middle of verse 5. And it says this, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River. John's baptism wasn't intended to induce repentance. But rather it was administered to those who were repentant and who had confessed their sin. And that's why I chose to look at those things in the order in which I did. I think the wording in verse 4 actually can be a source of confusion when it says, the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This makes it sound like baptism caused their repentance or it is the source of their forgiveness. 
neither of which is true. We need to understand the chronology and the progression of John's ministry accurately, which is listed in the second level of subpoints in your, your notes. Allow me to read them just real quickly. First, John preached God's message of repentance. It was God's word convicting them. Then his listeners were convicted with godly sorrow. Then they confessed their sins directly to God for forgiveness. They said the same thing that God was saying. Then they would be baptized by John as an outward expression of spiritual cleansing. And just as water cleanses dirt off the body, spiritually John's baptism was symbolic for Israel to cleanse sin from their lives. Israel was to cleanse themselves of sinful practices and breaking God's law. Why? Why? They were being prepared. They were being prepared for the Holy One to, to, from heaven who came to earth. They, that, that was preparation. But there's, there's something else that I want to help you to see. Sin prevents a person from seeing God clearly. And the same is true for us. When we allow sin to reside in our hearts, spiritually it blinds us from seeing God accurately. I think that this could be the most grieving and and devastating aspect of sin. And there can be temptations that are often, often the distance. And as if we yield to those temptations, if we yield to sin and we embrace those temptations, what happens? It comes near to us. It comes close to us. And it resides right here in, in your heart. And it obstructs us from being able to see who God clearly is. It's an impediment to our vision. And what starts out simply as a temptation, you know what it does? It yields to actions and thoughts and attitudes that eclipse our view of God. And when we lose sight of God, many things can happen. We lose sight of his glory and why we should be living for it. We lose sight of his goodness and the better things that he has for us. Better, far much better than any sin or temptation that we can entertain. We lose sight of his awesome nature and why we should be and establish a healthy fear of it. When our sin eclipses our view of God, it also prevents us from trusting him. We begin to trust in self. We begin to trust in circumstances. And, and all those things, really, it's just, it ends up producing idols of the heart. We... we, we we remove him from the throne of our lives, and it, it obstructs us from seeing him clear, clearly. Our, our vision, I've said this before, it's skewed up. It's skewed. It's off. And if there's one thing that's most true about the consistent reality of sin, it's that it obstructs and distorts our view of who God is. And this grieves God. This quenches the work of the, the Holy Spirit and the fullness of spirit that he would have us dwell in in fellowship with him. And so it's, it's good and it's a spiritually healthy question. What sin is in your life that is causing an obstruction from you seeing God clearly? 
we can all say the safe answer, can't we? All, all my sin. You know, all, all my sin. And, and that's true. But as we talked about knowing Christ and clearing, clearing the obstacles out of our lives and seeing him as he is, that the Holy Spirit would, would enter into the deep recesses of our hearts and say, what is it that I struggle with the most? What is it that I, I am battling? And what is it that is, is an impediment and obstructing my view of Christ? And I'm asking you, friend, I'm asking you for you to take some time, and you can come up with it in a New York minute. It's like, oh, Pastor John, let me think about Let me think long and hard about some sin that I've struggled with, and I'll get back to you on that one. It doesn't take long. It doesn't, does it? There's something, and it's war. It's war. We need to wage war. God is begging us to remove, remove those impediments so that we can see him more clearly. And the enabling grace of the gospel is not that we would merely be justified. It's so that we would continue to be sanctified so that we could see God more clearly as he truly is. He wants us to see him as he truly is. Holy and glorious in every way. And really this, this speaks to the, the ultimate joy of heaven and being in his presence when there, it's not even possible for any more obstacles to exist. And we'll be there and behold his presence. We'll be right there in his midst. But until that time, until that dispensation, until we are in his presence, what are we called to do? We're, we're called to cleanse. We're called to clean out those obstacles in our life so that we can see him with clarity. The forerunner's ministry prepared God's people. Well, there's a third way that John the Baptist paved the way for Christ's ministry so that our ministry could eventually begin. The forerunner's ministry exalted the coming Christ. Look at verse 6, and it paints this incredible portrait of the humble servant John. It says, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. Verse 6 gives us a visual introduction to his character. He wasn't trying to make a fashion statement. And let's just say that his food, well, it was different. It was different. As one commentator shared, he said, John the Baptist's idea of eating out was to catch a few grasshoppers and visit the local beehive for dessert. (laughs) That was funny. You might be tempted to say, poor John. Poor John, he didn't have much. But I, w- I want you to know, he was in perfect control of his lifestyle. He knew exactly what he was doing as he, as he d- dressed the way that Elijah, the, uh, the Tishbite did, mentioned in first, or excuse me, Second Kings 1.8, who also called his people to national repentance. And John's dress and lifestyle Really, in every way, it functioned as a protest to the materialism and the worldliness of his day. And his desire was to separate himself 
from the sinful culture to repent of it and to live a life focused on God. Listen to what R. Kent Hughes had to say. What was beautiful was that John's life and actions bore out who he was. He lived a life of continual repentance and uncompromising devotion to God. He was fearless in his proclamation of the message, just as his ancient prophetic garb portrayed. He rebuked the Pharisees, saying, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. In Matthew 3, 7 and 8. For the common people, there was instruction in giving. The man with two tunics should share with him who has none. Luke 3.11. He told the tax gatherers to be fair in Luke 3.13. He warned soldiers to be content and not not act high-handedly in Luke 3.14. John was fearless, was as fearless as he looked. He was also in keeping with his attire, self-forgetting and very humble. And the theme of humility woven into the fabric of John's life is also what enabled him to describe the exalted Savior, the exalted Savior which is our second subpoint. Listen to what he says about Christ in verse 7. And he was preaching and saying, After me, one is coming who is mightier than I. Now, if, we were to, if the verse were to end there, we might call into question John's humility. But it doesn't stop there. And the emphasis isn't on a self-exaltation of personal strength. Rather, it's featuring the exalted Savior's strength. One commentator shared this insight. Mightier than I bears witness to John's personal consciousness of divine strengthening, experiencing, experienced in connection with his obedience to his commission. Some of the men of the church in our leadership training were just recently talking about the reality that, you know, there's an acknowledgement as we see truly humble men. They're, they're always reflecting. They're always reflecting back to God, right? They, have a, they carry a mirror. We talked about the reality that they give glory to God and they reflect back in humility. And whenever that mirror can be tempted to get flipped around and we catch a glimpse and say, oh, look at all that I'm doing. Look at all that God is accomplishing through me, the pastor, me, the elder, me, the deacon over this ministry, me. Look, oh, look at me. I, I look pretty good. You know, that's, that's exactly the point in time where, where, where God has to break us, right? He breaks that mirror, and he gives us a new one. And he says, we need to deflect. We need to give glory back to him. And that is exactly what John the Baptist does. Here he finishes with verse 7 with a profound picture of the exalted Christ when he says, And I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. It was common for the lowest of slaves in Rome and in the ancient Near East to serve a duty that involved wiping the dirt and the feces off people's feet as they traveled through animal and filthy roads, okay, dirt roads, <laughs> yucky roads, you know what I'm saying there, that filled the streets, and it was the lowest job on the totem pole. It's also the one that the Lord Jesus Christ took on himself in John 3, or John 13, right? Picked up the basin to wash their feet, 
And here, John is using a metaphor that was common during this time period that allowed an even deeper recognition of unworthiness where he is basically saying, never mind, never mind washing his feet. I am not even worthy or fit to touch the sandal that is connected to his feet. Spare washing his feet. I, I can't even, I, I, I'm not even, I can't even come near touching his feet. That's, that's a, 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 a whole other way in our common vernacular to say, I'm not worth anything. I am not worth anything. You may even recall when Jesus' ministry began to rise and John's ministry was being uh, eclipsed, how his disciples came running to him and they're like, John, John, man, there's this new guy and he's, his ministry, all of a sudden, things are taking over. It's starting to eclipse yours. And he has such a great response. He says, a man can receive only what is given from heaven. I am not the Christ. John saw himself like a joyous friend of the bridegroom and concluded with these immortal words that are recorded for us in John 3.30. He must become greater and I must become less. He, he must increase and I must decrease. The forerunner's ministry exalted Christ and the reason it did was because he lived a life of making less of himself and he was, he was full bore. He was intent on exalting the one that was going to come after him. And the reason John was such an effective witness is that he embodied his message. He, he lived out. Everyone could see it. That he was living out and practicing what it was that he preached. He was practicing repentance. He was living in humility. He was pointing to God. And it's one thing to say it. But we all know it's another thing to do it. It's, an, it's another thing to, to live it. And nothing will make our words and Christian testimonies penetrate more than that which is true in us and comes from the heart and total sincerity. If we want to impact those around us, they need to see our lives. And our lives need to be carrying the banner of what Christ stands for and his truth. That's going to be the difference. We need to be living demonstrations of the truth of our message. So it's a good question. Are, are you willing to pray that prayer? Send an altar call. Pray a prayer. Are, are you willing to pray the prayer, Lord, make my life, use my life so that I can be a living and abiding testimony that points to the exalted Savior? Lord, only you know what that looks like for me. Only you know. But I, I want to, to yield to you. I want you to use my life. I want to be poured out for you. I want to be used like John the Baptist was in great measure. I want my personal ministry to have this kind of impact for your glory. Can you imagine? Can you imagine for a moment if that was prayed with sincerity and with fervency, what that could look like in our lives? It can change. It can change the reality of our lives. Well, our passage today provides four ways that John the Baptist paved the way for Christ's ministry so that our ministry could eventually begin. John's ministry fulfilled prophecy. It prepared God's people. 
it exalted the coming Christ. And finally, verse 8 will help us to see that the forerunner's ministry initiated the Messiah's ministry. Let's read our final verse together. It says this, Here Mark records John the Baptist saying, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Here John mentions two different baptisms. And we don't have to talk about baptism right now because next week we're going to see Mark's recorded account of Jesus being baptized. And we'll have plenty of time there to talk about uh, different baptisms. But for now, I want you to see the significance of these two baptisms mentioned in this verse and for good reason, because it drives at the heartbeat of our message today, which again is helping us to see how John's ministry paved the way for Christ's ministry so that our ministry eventually begins. That's a whole lot of ministry taking place. I'll share this. This is one of the most important verses in all of Scripture. They all, all, they're all important. But let me just say, not all of them carry the same weightiness, theological weightiness and implication as this verse does. And this verse describes the construction of the divine bridge built by John the Baptist ministry, prophesied in the Old Testament that is linking to Christ's ministry that is about to be inaugurated in the New Testament. And the bridge is constructed by a key concept that is found really nowhere in the Old Testament. The, the word itself is not baptism, only in the New Testament. Baptism was a radically novel concept to the Jews introduced by John the Baptist. Now, people who weren't Jews, proselytes who converted to Judaism, there was a spiritual cleansing that took place that is all often spoken of that was similar to baptism. And what was the view of the Jewish people of Gentiles? It wasn't very good. It wasn't. They looked down upon them, right? They, they, they thought very ill about them. And so it was appropriate for them to go ahead and get cleansed, right? They, <laughs> they needed like multiple cleansing, probably in the Jewish mindset. It was like, yeah, you need to take, you know, a, a bathy and then a second bathy and just keep keep bathing, right? To be Jewish, okay? You just keep keep soaking in the tub, right? But what's remarkable is that the Jews were being asked to do something that they had never done before in their history. Jews being baptized, this was absolutely unheard of. And it also was making a connection with the ministry of Jesus Christ that Jew and Gentile were going to come together, And this is powerful. And now all of a sudden they're being called to practice what those other people who wanted to become like them, you know, speaking from a pharisaical mindset, that needed to be cleansed. God was saying, you need to be cleansed. And that's why John the Baptist was called the baptizer, because there was nobody else like him. It was, it was unique. Well, notice our first sub-point. John's water baptism foreshadows gospel ministry. And you may ask how so. The Greek word translated baptized twice here is the, is the Greek word baptizo, which means to immerse. And the picture of the external cleansing that John's baptism provided through immersion in water was a foreshadowing, foreshadowing of the spiritual immersion that was to come to New Testament believers through Christ and the coming ministry of the Holy Spirit. 
In the same way that Christ was going to be greater, uh, personally, one is coming mightier than I, John said. His ministry was coming, and his ministry was going to be greater and, and, and fulfill, fulfill gospel ministry. And this leads us to our final sub-point to complete our understanding. What John was ultimately saying in this verse was, I have immersed you in water which was only external, but the one who is coming is going to immerse you in the Holy Spirit which is intrinsically internal. What a beautiful metaphor to describe the expanded role of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. When we are baptized with the Holy Spirit, he permeates every part of us. Our nature is forever changed. And our time is up. We're over time. You guys are so gracious. You're so gracious. Well, let me, let me close with this. Um, there's a quote by, by J.C. Ryle that speaks directly about this verse. And I want to share it with you, and we'll close our time. It says, Let us observe in the latest place what clear doctrine characterized John the Baptist's preaching. He exalted Christ. There comes one mightier than I after me. He spoke plainly of the Holy Spirit. He shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit. These truths had never been so plainly proclaimed before by mortal man. More important truths than these are not to be found in the whole system of Christianity at this day. The principal work of every faithful minister of the gospel is to set the Lord Jesus Christ fully before his people and show them his fullness and his power to save. The next great work he has to do is to set before them the work of the Holy Spirit and the need of being born again and inwardly baptized by his grace. These two mighty truths appear to have been frequently on the lips of John the Baptist. It would be well for the church and the world if there were more ministers like him. Let us ask ourselves as we leave the passage how much we know by the practical experience of the truths which John preached. What do we think of Christ? Have we felt our need of him and fled to him for peace? Is he king over our hearts and all things to our souls? What do we think of the Holy Spirit? Has he wrought a saving work in our hearts? Has he renewed and changed us? Has he made us partakers of the divine nature? Life or death depend on our answer to these questions. And Ryle closes by quoting Romans 8, 9. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. John's ministry built a bridge to Christ's ministry. Christ's ministry built a bridge to our ministry as New Testament believers. They are forever and inseparably linked. May we be as faithful with our ministry as John the Baptist was with his as we look to Christ being glorified in his exaltation. Thank you for giving me a little extra time. Let's close in prayer.